And there are times when we don't even know uh, we're at a key moment. It might be when we look back. Uh, Sometimes they're mundane. Uh, Sometimes they're bigger. It could be this morning you had a key moment. Do I have that third cup of coffee and that second donut? And the answer is always yes to more coffee and more donuts. Uh, But it could be something grander. Uh, What college do you choose to attend? For me, uh, that was a, a key time because I went to Virginia Tech and there met my wife. And, uh, and if it wasn't for meeting her, I wouldn't be quite the good man I am today or have the family that I have. Or perhaps it's the career that you choose to go into. There are oftentimes all these choices that we make that define us. And for my family and I, uh, there are two dates that stand out, uh, 2003 and 2018. Uh, Larry mentioned uh, both of those were pivotal in our family's life because uh, in 2003 we stood here before you, North Wake, and you prayed for us, and then you commissioned us and sent us out. Uh, you sent us out to the Middle East to serve, uh, and we took the gospel to a place and to a people that most had never heard of Jesus, or if they had, it was uh, not quite right, and so we spent time ministering there, and then we, the Lord brought us back here, and then 2018, about a year and a half ago, once again, we stood before you. Uh, you prayed for us, you commissioned us, and you sent us out not to the Middle East, but just across town. Uh, to Richland Creek Community Church, and uh, now we serve there. Uh, Together as a family, we worship there, and I'm the pastor of young professionals. And so on behalf of my family, let me say thank you. Uh, Thank you, North Wake, for having a heartbeat for God's mission among the nations, but not just having that heartbeat, uh, but putting action behind it and raising up and sending out your people, literally, all around the world. And that's what you've been doing this week. You've, you've spent time this week with intermission celebrating what God is doing uh, among, the glo- among the nations around the globe. Uh, North Wake, you've heard stories even this morning. You've heard grand stories and you've given generously and you'll have an opportunity at the end of the service to give even more generously. But maybe throughout this week that culminates in this moment, in this morning, maybe for you sitting here, Maybe this moment might be a key moment for you, a defining moment for you or your family. And not just for you, uh, because God's church is not just individuals. It is us coming and gathering together. This is God's church. And let me say this, the church needs a defining moment. And the reason it needs a defining moment, because the church today is facing growing challenges. Some are old and some are new. Uh, For example, uh, uh, Barna has done some studies uh, over the last few years, and here's the conclusion they have as they've looked at uh, the church and people's perception of the church and connection to the church. Here's their conclusion. It's this, that three-quarters of U.S. adults believe that the presence of the church is either very or somewhat positive. Yet, those same adults They're less clear about how churches actually make a tangible impact in their communities. And so this discrepancy or this gap between actual and perceived value of the church, uh, I would say it's only widening. Yes, spirituality is on the rise, but practices like church attendance and even evangelism are on dramatic declines. And so for more and more people, the church isn't making a difference. I would venture to say the church really doesn't matter. 
And so this morning, I want us to drop in on three moments in the life of the early church in Acts. We'll be in Acts 7, chapter 7 through 9, and and we're going to look briefly at the stories of Stephen and Philip and Saul. Why these moments? Why these three stories? Well, I think I I like how Mark Dever uh, says it, says this of the church. He says, uh, the church is the gospel made visible. And I would add that it's when the gospel is made visible, that's when the church matters. And I believe that we find in these three stories not only a trajectory for the early church, but they highlight for us this morning characteristics of a church that makes a difference, of a church that matters. And so pray with me. Lord God, we do come before you this morning. We come to you because you are kind and gracious, and we see that most clearly in your son, Jesus. And we come to you gathered in the power of your spirit and we bow to your word and we ask you, even this morning, would you use your word along with your spirit to perform surgery in our lives? As we consider these moments and these stories, I pray that uh, we would not simply gloss over them, but we would understand what it is you have for us as your church this morning. And so we give you this time, and we ask you to make much of it. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So if you have, your again, your scriptures, if you would open or turn on or power up, however you do that, uh, to Acts chapter 7, uh, we'll start there uh, in the first verse. So Acts 7, 1 through 3, it says this. And the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I I will show you. And so we're at an odd spot. It's kind of odd to start right here because we pick up in chapter 7 mid-confrontation between Stephen and the religious leaders of the day, the the Sanhedrin and the high priest. And so the question is, well, how did we get here? Why is there this conflict? Why is there there this challenge between Stephen and the religious leaders of the day? And if if we were to look back in Acts chapter 6, it kind of gives us some of the background uh, to where we are. But uh, let me just read one spot for you here in Acts chapter 6. Uh, Verse 7 says this, that the word of God spread and the disciples in Jerusalem increased. They increased greatly in number and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. And so what that's telling us is that as the church grew, as it began to make an impact, uh, what happened was the church began to infringe upon the cultural status quo, began to mess things up for people. And as the status quo was disrupted, opposition began to mount against the church. And then we find Stephen, or Stephen finds himself, right in the middle of this conflict, this confrontation. So the question might be, who is Stephen? Again, Acts 6 helps us out in a few spots. It it says in Acts 6, 5 that Stephen is a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Uh, Later on in Acts 6, 8, it says that he's also full of grace and power And then at the end of chapter 6 in 
towards the end in verse 11, we have this interesting uh, comment that Luke gives us that Stephen was also one who had the face of an angel. This is who Stephen is. And so now let's pick back up in chapter 7. And so we begin to see right here that from the very start, from the very beginning, that when Stephen's confronted, he does not back down. In fact, Stephen's response to the charges, to the allegations, is that he takes the people back to the story of Israel. He goes back all the way to Abraham, and even as you've talked this morning about being blessed to be a blessing, he goes back there in Genesis chapter 12. And I believe what Stephen's beginning to do as he walks them through, his accusers through the story of Israel, he's resetting. He's trying to help them understand where they lost their way. So he talks about Abraham and Joseph. He talks about the time uh, that the Israelites spent in Egypt and and Moses, and he ends with uh, some discussion of Joshua and David and Solomon. So he's recounting for them the story of Israel And what he ends up doing, that Stephen, he's responding to these charges on behalf of the church, and the charge is this, that the church and Stephen have opposed the law of Moses and the, the customs of the day, and so he walks them through, and in verse 51 of chapter 7, he says this, you stiff necked people, with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you're always resisting the Holy Spirit, just as your ancestors did. Uh, Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? And they even killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one whose betrayers and uh, murderers you have now become. You received the law under the direction of angels and yet you have not kept it. And so the very charge is leveled at Stephen and the church by retelling the story of Israel. He turns them on their head and says, actually you're the ones who have made a mockery of God's law. You're the ones who have missed the point. And so then we see their response in verses 54 through 60. And now when they heard these things, they were enraged. They ground their teeth at him, Stephen, but he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, He fell asleep. So at one level, the response of the leaders shouldn't surprise us. At another level, it should shock us. It should shock us because it ended in the first martyr for the church. It ended in the death of Stephen. But it may not surprise us because if you've been following or you know the story of the early church in the the book of Acts, opposition has been gaining momentum against the church. Uh, Acts chapter 4, we see that Peter and John, uh, they're, uh, they're arrested and they're dragged to court to stand trial before this very same group of religious leaders, the Sanhedrin. 
We read in verse 21 that it, it ends not with a death, but it says that when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. So it ends with a threat and a warning. And then in chapter 5, there's, a, there's more arrest, there's, there's jail time, and then there's another trial. And this one ends a bit differently in verse 40 of chapter 5. It says, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them. And they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then they let them go. So it ends not with a threat, but with a beating and with a demand for silence. And then it moves us into chapter 6 and chapter 7 where we have been. And so we see another trial. And now this one, though, ends dramatically differently. It ends in martyrdom. Death for the faith. And so the question is why? Why? Why is this so different than the times before and again, if I can appeal to Acts chapter 6, let me just read a few verses starting in uh, verse 11. It says, and then, they were secretly inst- then they secretly instigated men who said, We've heard him, being Stephen, speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And then they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man... He never ceases to speak words against the holy place and the law. So why is this different? Why did it end in martyrdom and death? It ended because of these very things. Men were instigated. People were stirred up. False witnesses were gathered. It ended differently because now the religious leaders had the support of the wider community. The community had flipped. And because community perception had changed... We see Stephen giving his life on behalf of the church. And so what can we learn from this moment in the life of the early church about a church that matters? This brings us to our first three characteristics of a church that matters. There are these, a church that matters stands for the truth against the wisdom of the age. A church that matters is not surprised by opposition and doesn't run from persecution. And a church that matters intercedes for those most opposed to it. Now here's a name that you may not be familiar with, but you should be. The name of Lawan Andimi. Lawan Andimi was a pastor who was kidnapped earlier this month. On January 2nd, in his home country of Nigeria, he was kidnapped, captured by the radical group Boko Haram. Not only was he kidnapped earlier this month, in fact, about a week ago, on January 20th, he was executed. But what sets his story apart is the video that was played. He was made to go in front of the cameras, as, as all kidnapping victims are. Uh, but but the, the way he presented himself and the God he spoke of sent ripples. Here's what it said, and you can look online, it might be disturbing, but, but you can see what he said. And he says this, I have never been discouraged because all conditions that one finds himself in is in the hands of God. By the grace of God, I will be together with my wife, my children, and my colleagues. But if the opportunity has not been granted, maybe it is the will of God. Be patient. Be patient. 
Don't cry. Don't worry. But thank God for everything. And with that, he gave his life. Like Stephen, Pastor Andimi did not run from persecution. He stood firm. He gave testimony to God and ultimately was a witness unto death. And so church, let us, like Stephen, not shy away from those who oppose the gospel and from persecution, but even more so, let us intercede for them. So we see that in the life of Stephen. And now we move into Acts chapter 8 as the story keeps going. Uh, We pick up in Acts 8 verse 1 here. uh, It says, and Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except for the apostles. Uh, Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them uh, to prison. And so let me just uh, pause here for a moment because uh, right from the very beginning, we, we see Saul again. And we're going to come back to him, uh, but I want you to notice just a, a couple of things that, first of all, uh, he's not only a bystander, but he is in full agreement with the stoning of Stephen. And not only is Saul there and in full agreement with the stoning of Stephen, he is in fact uh, the very source of intense persecution against the church. The the word used there for ravaging is like a wild animal being let loose to destroy things. And so Paul, or excuse me, Saul is the one uh, who is uh, the purveyor of this intense persecution against the church, and he has no regard for where he may find uh, uh, the believers, where he may find the church, or what their age or gender is. And so this is where the church is, and then we pick up in verse 4. And now those due to this persecution, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, they paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, four unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice, they came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed, and so there was much joy in that city." And so we find the church at a, at a critical moment that uh, persecution is ramping up and it says the church is scattered, literally thrown out like seed to the wind. But I like how Luke characterizes the scattering of the church. Those that were scattered, the men and women that make up the church as they were scattered, he says, look, they were faithfully continuing to do elsewhere what they had been doing at home in Jerusalem. They went on their way preaching the word. They had already been doing this. They just continued in a different location. And so we need to see that the church scattered should be no different than the church gathered. Whether it's in Wake Forest or Washington, D.C. or Portland or the Czech Republic or Papua New Guinea. The word should take priority and be prominent as we minister to people no matter the location or the circumstance. And so as the church was scattered and they were faithful, we see here Philip is positioned as the clear example of one who is faithful, one who goes about preaching the word wherever he might be scattered. And we see that here and we pick up later in Acts chapter eight, we see him in a different location, 
Verse 26 says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise, go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. He rose and he arose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. He'd come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning. He was seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. And so Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And so we already know that Philip is faithful no matter where he finds himself. But what we see here is not only the faithfulness of Philip, but he's also sensitive to the moving and the direction of the Lord. He is one who listens. And not only listens, he's willing to obey even when he doesn't have all the information. Oh, that I, that, that we would have a faith like Philip. That we would respond to the Lord even when we don't have all the information, or for me, when my pro-con list doesn't lead the right, lean the right way. Because <laughs> we see here in verses 26 through uh, 29 that, that Philip is given direction. He's, he's told where to go, and uh, he's even brought to the point of coming alongside a chariot, but he's not given words to say. I don't know about you, but I find this curious, that, that God has given so much direction and so much leading and so many details, yet he seems to leave a big piece out. <laughs> Why? Well, I think it's because of this fact that the Lord's already been clear about the purpose of the church moving forward in Acts 1.8. Philip knows that he remembers and he understands that, remember what's said in Acts 1.8, that when the Spirit comes, you will receive power, and not just power, you will then be changed. You will be my witnesses wherever you go. And so we know the church is both the agent and the object of mission, and so the church is to make the gospel visible through sharing the good news of the gospel, through making disciples and serving in our communities. Philip knew this. We know this. See, the Lord doesn't tend to give explicit details on things he's already made abundantly clear in his scriptures. So what message was, was Philip supposed to tell the eunuch? What message are we supposed to tell the people that we come across in our daily lives. It's the same message. It's the gospel. And some have, have pointed to this interaction between Philip and the eunuch, and they call it a divine appointment. Uh, my, my wife and I served for a number of years with a, uh, another ministry called Campus Crusade for Christ. Uh, the original founder and uh, the president uh, at that time was Bill Bright. And Bill Bright had this understanding of divine appointments that if he was with anybody for more than five minutes, that was a divine appointment. That was a gospel opportunity. Uh, now, for me, it takes me about three months to get to know somebody. But for him, it was literally five minutes, and he knew he was there to tell them about the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And so when Philip, when Philip was scattered, or should I say sent, he was ready and willing to share the gospel with whomever he met. Uh, because don't forget, who is it that he shared with? In the first passage that we read, he first found himself among the crowds, the marginalized, uh, 
those who were possessed, those who needed healing. And then in the passage we just read, Philip finds himself not with the crowds or the marginalized, but with a God-fearer, but also someone who had a different skin color, uh, someone who had a different socioeconomic status than him, someone that while he could go to Jerusalem and go to the temple, he couldn't enter it. He didn't fit with the religious categories of the day. And I would encourage you later today to read Deuteronomy 23, verse 1. It'll bless you, but it'll tell you why he wasn't allowed to enter into the temple. And so Philip took his gospel wherever he was sent to the crowds and to this eunuch. And let me just remind you, what was the gospel response? Well, it was the same. Uh, Remember verse 8 of of chapter 8, it says, after Philip went there and ministered the gospel, verse 8 says, there was great joy in the city. And then when Philip spent time with the eunuch, answering his questions, explaining the gospel, and then He was baptized. In verse 39, it says that when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. The eunuch, he did not see him any longer, but what did he do? He went on his way rejoicing. Joy. Why is there so much joy connected to this message? It's because this message, when it's brought to the people, they're healed. The marginalized, they're shown that they are seen and that they matter. And so this gospel message, this good news, it's, it's a message for those that, at least in the world's eyes, would have status and reputation. It's also a message, equally a message, for those in the world's eyes that are considered to have no status, no reputation. Why? The gospel is the great equalizer. The gospel is good news for all people, irrespective of social position, cultural background, or economic status. And church, in the same way, our gospel ministry and witness should reflect the wider community, regardless of ethnicity, social class, or economic status. So here's my question. How is the good news making a difference in the wider community of Wake Forest through North Wake Church? And that leads us to our next two characteristics of a church that matters that we see from the story of Philip. A church that matters responds to the Spirit and sees daily interactions as divine appointments. And a church that matters is composed of people who know the gospel and can articulate it. I like what Michael Green says. I've got a quote here where he's talking about this very scattering of just normal, ordinary people in the church. Uh, And he says this, they were scattered from their base in Jerusalem and they went everywhere spreading the good news. This must often have been not formal preaching, but informal chattering to friends and chance acquaintances in homes and wine shops, clearly not Baptist, on walks and around the market stalls. They went everywhere gossiping the gospel. They did it naturally, enthusiastically, and with the conviction of those who weren't paid to say this sort of thing. Consequently, they were taken seriously, and the movement spread. And so, North Wake, let me, let me tell you this morning that I'm encouraged. I'm encouraged by the reports that I hear about consistent weekly prayer where you gather together and pray for the lost and those in your community. I'm, I'm encouraged by the gospel conversation trainings that you do. And let me tell you, keep at it. 
But alongside of that, let me also encourage you this morning, if you are sitting here and you identify with Jesus, you say, I'm a son or a daughter of the great king, I want to tell you that you know enough right now to chatter and gossip the gospel wherever you're scattered throughout the week. Whether it's the office or the classroom, wherever you might find yourself, chatter and gossip the gospel. I was encouraged this past week, and I'll brag a little bit on my, uh, my second oldest daughter, Chloe. Uh, again, freshman in high school, uh, she hasn't had a lot of formal trainings. Uh, we talk about the gospel in our home, and uh, she sees it modeled, but yet she's still trying to figure out what does it mean to be a Jesus follower. What does it mean for a, a teenager and uh, among my friends to be a light for Jesus? And uh, what does it mean to chatter and gossip in a good way? The gospel. Uh, and so this week she has a friend that she spends quite a bit of time with. And this friend began to share with her uh, some of the, the, the challenges and the, the issues in her life. So much to the point that her friend has begun to ask questions about, do I matter? And wouldn't everybody be okay if I was gone? And so my daughter, Chloe, she just began to chatter and gossip the gospel. She began to tell her friend that, no, you do matter. Why? Because God created you. And because God created you, you have value and dignity. And she began to answer her questions. And so, church, let me encourage you. Start where you are. Wherever it is that you are scattered in this community or beyond, Chatter and gossip the gospel. And this should be true of the church no matter where we find ourselves or what age we are. And so we see this in the story of Philip. And now let's keep moving into Acts chapter 9. And, and we'll read the first eight verses here. Uh, now Saul, or, or but Saul, uh, he was still breathing threats and, and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Uh, he even went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. So Saul arose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he, he saw nothing. And so they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. So uh, the beginning right here, we, we see Saul again. Uh, and, and he's been key in this story so far that as opposition and persecution continues to rise and, and push against the church, I, I believe we see Saul at the center of it because Saul himself is this persecution against the church. He's this persecution personified. What do you mean by that? Well, uh, we saw at the end of chapter uh, 7 that, that Paul, or excuse me, Saul was seen as a bystander to the conflict but yet in the beginning of chapter 8, we see he wasn't just a bystander. He also voiced agreement with the murder of Stephen. And then as we move further into chapter 8 and even here in chapter 9, we see that he moves from bystander to voicing agreement to full-on terrorizing the church in Jerusalem and even beyond. 
And it's so amazing because the one that brought so much suffering and, and brought terror upon the church, he now on the way to, to instigate more conflict, to instigate more suffering, he meets the suffering servant on the road to Damascus. And now, if you were to keep reading in, in chapter 9, verses 15 and 16, lets us know that he who brought suffering will now suffer on behalf of this church. What a transformation. What a radical conversion that he who was a terrorist to the church is now an evangelist and missionary for the church. Wow. In church, we... <laughs> We should have these stories in our church if we are making a difference. We see here uh, a little bit later on uh, kind of a summary statement of what's been going on in the midst of all this. Verse 31 says this. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied or some of your translations may say it increased in numbers. And so church, as we are making a difference, as we are reaching people where they are, we should see these stories. We should see our numbers increasing. And it won't always be neat and tidy. This time last year, there's a young man that I I've gotten to know in the last year, and this time last year, he, he found himself one morning waking up in another city far from here. He woke up on a cold morning. He woke up on a park bench, and, and when he woke up, there was uh, another gentleman sitting there who he didn't know. He didn't know was sitting beside him, and this young man, as he woke up, uh, the reason why he was in another city, the reason why he was living out in the open and sleeping on park benches is because he was also addicted to drugs. And not only that, he was running from his family. And so this young man, he, he tells me the story that in that moment when he woke up and looked around, uh, in that moment when he was shivering and beginning to wonder, how did I find myself here? He says, a thought hit him. Life is more valuable than this. I want my life to matter and so with that, he, he got up and he found a shelter and checked in and asked for a Bible. And this young man, he's not perfect, but now he gathers on a regular basis in my home. Uh, trying to learn the scriptures and, and making something more of his life. And as he has opportunity to tell other people about the Jesus that saved him. And so church, we should have these stories. In fact, it leads us to our last two characteristics of a church that matters. A church that matters is full of radical conversion stories. And let me just give you a word of, of, of caution or, or perhaps just warning that I'm talking about radical conversion stories, not what some have called just transfer or transplant growth of Christians moving from one church to another, uh, but, but people coming to faith or being converted. Um, Donald McGavern, some of you may have heard his name. He's, he's pretty familiar in um, missions and church growth circles. But he says this about conversion growth. He says, conversion growth is the kind of growth in which those outside the church come to rest their faith intelligently 
on Jesus Christ and are baptized and added to the Lord in his church. This is the only kind of growth by which the good news of salvation can spread to all segments of American society and to the earth's remotest bounds. So here's my question. What are the conversion stories that make up North Wake Church? And we also see that a church that matters is unified around God's mission to the nations beginning here in your own community. Uh, last month, uh, the Baptist Press, a uh, little, little paper, ran an article, uh, a good article, and it, was, uh, it, it talked about a meeting that happened. And so the president of the International Mission Board, uh, Paul Chitwood, he met uh, with leaders from five area churches. Uh, the, these leaders from these five area churches are counted in the top ten uh, of all missionary sending churches across the entire Southern Baptist Convention. It's a lot of churches and a lot of people. And so the president of the IMB met with these leaders from five area churches because they're recognized. They, these churches are in the top ten of sending to the nations. And you know one of those churches? North Wake. Praise God. There is no question that North Wake is a church unified around God's mission among the nations. That's what we've been celebrating all week and even this morning. Uh, intermissions, you've, uh, throughout your time, you've heard God-sized stories from around the world. But let me ask you this, what about the stories from here in Wake Forest? What Wake Forest and the wider community needs is a gospel-centered love that meets real people where they really are. In other words, they need the visible church. So North Wake, you've been recognized as a church that matters globally. Keep it up. But let me also encourage you alongside of that to position yourself as a church that matters locally here in Wake Forest. Let 2020 be your defining moment as a church so that the community can say we're not just somewhat or very positive that there's uh, this church building at 1212 South Main Street. But we, you began to hear stories from people in the community about how this church makes a tangible difference in their lives. Let 2020 be your defining moment. And so this morning, we've considered three people. Why? Because the church isn't a building. It is God's people gathered around his mission. We've looked at defining moments in the life of the early church and in the lives of Stephen and Philip and Saul. These are just ordinary people serving an extraordinary God. And in just a few moments, uh, you're going to have a chance to respond in multiple ways. Uh, Larry's going to come up and talk more about your opportunities to continue to give generously. But don't let this moment pass because there are other ways you might be feeling led to respond. Perhaps this morning is a defining moment for you. Uh, maybe you just need to come forward and pray, whether it be at the altar or to grab my hand or another leader's hand, because maybe you find yourself like Stephen. And you just need to trust the Lord to demonstrate courage in the face of growing opposition and persecution. Maybe, maybe you're like Philip. Maybe the Lord has been stirring. Maybe the Lord has been moving and telling you where you need to go and maybe something you need to do. And this morning you need prayer just for the ability and the courage to say yes. Or maybe as you come forward, maybe you find yourself today like Saul. 
Even sitting here this morning, that as you sit and as you have been here, you find yourself as an opponent of the gospel and of the church. Today, this morning could be your radical conversion story. This could be the defining moment where you meet Jesus and your life is forever changed. Don't miss this opportunity. I'd love to talk to you about that. Or finally, uh, maybe you're just looking to find your place in a church that matters. Why don't you consider joining North Wake? Join them on their mission to make Jesus' name famous here in Wake Forest, across this country, and around the world. Let's pray. God, you are good. And God, even this morning as we have considered your scriptures and the story of the early church, I I pray that we would find ourselves there as well. Uh, Lord God, that we would not run from or hide from opposition and persecution. That in those moments, really any moment throughout our days, that as we come across people, that we would see them as you see them. And we would take time and take advantage of opportunities to share with them. Lord, if there are any here this morning that they came in today and they didn't know you, I pray that that would not be the same as they leave. And so, God, we, we ask you, help us to respond with full hearing and in full obedience. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.